2: Lucy Letby is accused of the murder of
3: seven babies and the attempted murder of 10 others. While she was working on the neonatal unit at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Letby denies all of the charges over the incidents.
2: Lucy Letby was the only person working on the night shift. It was alleged in court that their mother was apparently told by Miss Letby, trust me, I'm a nurse.
1: This is a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It involves the most shocking of allegations, the alleged murders and attempted murders of tiny, premature babies at the hands of a neonatal nurse whose very job it was to look after them.
4: Lucy Letby is on trial at Manchester Crown Court, accused of killing seven infants and injuring 10 more at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Cheshire. In total, there are 22 charges, all of which she denies. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for The Mail. I will be in court to report on the case as it develops. And
1: I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week on this podcast, we'll examine what's happened and bring you the details behind the headlines.
4: This is the trial of Lucy Letby. The case against Lucy Letby is
1: that she murdered or tried to kill 17 babies while she was working as a neonatal nurse at the Countess of Chester Hospital in the northwest of England. She denies the charges.
4: The babies in this trial are not being named for legal reasons, and the identities of their families are also being protected. They're known only as Babies A to Q. Seven of the babies died. Ten
1: survived. Each one of these babies was or is someone's son or daughter and the mums, dads and families of every baby are present in court, listening to every detail of how their child was allegedly killed or harmed.
4: We'll be bringing you that detail as the jury is hearing it from the prosecution and defence. We're getting behind the headlines to explain far more than the news reports you'll be reading, watching and listening to. And the importance of a fair trial is paramount, so we won't be getting into anything in this podcast that the jury have not been told, because they are the 12 people who have to decide the outcome of this case. The jury is now hearing about each baby in turn,
1: and over the past few weeks, we focused each episode on each baby. We've already heard how six babies were allegedly killed or harmed by Lucy Letby over a six-week period in the summer of 2015. Today, we focus on the seventh baby in this case.
4: Welcome to episode nine, Baby G, part one.
1: So Liz, like in the last episode, we're splitting this episode into two parts. And again, that's because of delays in the case, but also because of the nature of the allegations relating to Baby G.
4: Yes, Caroline, we've lost several days because a juror fell ill, but... Also, Lucy Lietby is accused of attempting to murder Baby G three times, once on a night shift in September 2015 and twice on another day, a fortnight later. The prosecution have split their case in two to help the jury understand the timings. Today, in part one, we'll explain what the
1: prosecution say happened to Baby G in the early hours of September the 7th. And next week, we'll explain what they say happened two weeks later, on September the
4: 21st. We'll also bring you more information from the defence and why they say Lucy Letby is not guilty of these attempted murders. Baby G is
1: the most premature baby involved in this case. She weighed just one pound two ounces and her father said she was no bigger than his hand when she was born at the end of May 2015. She was actually born before all the other babies we've heard about so far but because she was so premature She was still on the neonatal unit in September, more than three months later.
4: Yes, the jury have heard that Baby G was an IVF baby. Her mother had been in and out of the Countess before her birth because of problems with her placenta that had caused her to bleed. When her waters started to leak at 23 weeks and 6 days, she was sent to Arrow Park Hospital on the Wirral, which is a specialist centre, in case the baby arrived. Not long after being admitted to Arrow Park, Baby G's mother complained to
1: nurses that she had tummy ache. They thought it was a symptom of the drugs she was on to help speed up the development of the baby's lungs. They didn't realise labour had started.
4: In a statement read to the court, Baby G's mother described the distressing moment her daughter was born while she was sitting on the toilet on the hospital ward. Her words are voiced by an actor.
5: I was 23 weeks pregnant. My waters were leaking so they sent me to Arrow Park Hospital where they monitored me. It was on a Sunday and I was complaining about stomach ache. I went to the bathroom and my daughter came out. The emergency bell didn't work and nothing happened. No one came. So I was screaming and hitting the walls. Someone came and I told them my daughter was only 23 to 24 weeks. They went for help and everyone rushed in. I didn't know whether she was a girl or a boy at first and when they said girl I just said save her. They were trying to calm me down and her down. She was only one pound two ounces, just a little tiny thing.
1: The first doctor who rushed in to help Baby G's mother was paediatrician Lara Bunny. She described scooping the tiny infant out of the water in the toilet bowl while she was still attached to her mother via the umbilical cord and wrapping her
4: in a plastic bag to keep her warm. Baby G was described as being in a poor condition at birth. She needed ventilating immediately to help her breathe. She was so small that doctors gave her just a 5% chance of survival and her mother was unable to hold her for the first seven weeks of her life. Baby G had many problems in the first few weeks, including chronic lung disease, kidney and bowel problems, infections, jaundice and high blood sugar. She also had a serious bleed on one of her lungs. The court heard that at least five times in those early days, her parents were warned that she wouldn't make it. But her
1: mother also told the court that her daughter was a fighter,
4: and by the time she was 13 weeks
1: old, she'd overcome most of those problems. And doctors at Arrow Park believed
4: she was well enough to be transferred to the Countess, closer to her parents' home. On the evening of August the 13th, an ambulance transferred baby G to Chester, where she was admitted to the neonatal unit. By then, she was what doctor's class is full term, or 37 weeks old, and she weighed around four pounds. She was off her ventilator, but still receiving oxygen via small prongs up her nose, and was being fed her mother's expressed breast milk every three hours, either by her nasal tube or a bottle. And once at the Countess, she was admitted
1: to nursery two. Now, that was the high dependency room, and she was doing well. That was until the night shift of September the 6th into the early hours of September the 7th, which is when the prosecution say Lucy Letby tried to kill her.
4: And the evening of September the 6th is significant for two reasons, Caroline. Firstly, it was Lucy Letby's final night of a block of four night shifts. And this was the first block of night shifts she'd worked since the alleged attack on baby F almost five weeks earlier. And secondly, it was significant because September the 6th was baby G's 99th day of life and nurses were getting ready to help her parents celebrate her 100th day milestone the following day. They'd even put up a party banner near her cot and brought in a cake for them. But
1: instead of it being a day of celebration, baby G's 100th day ended up being a day of worry for her parents because shortly after 2am on September the 7th, Baby G vomited violently and suddenly collapsed.
4: Yes, and it's the prosecution case that this was because Lucy Letby sabotaged her care. They say she overfed Baby G with milk, then injected air into her stomach, causing her to stop breathing and become dangerously ill.
1: So Liz, let's outline what the prosecution say happened that night. Lucy Letby was on shift, as we've heard, but she
4: wasn't Baby G's designated nurse. The court was told another nurse, who we can't name for legal reasons, was her designated nurse. She was looking after Baby G in nursery Two and another baby not involved in the case, in a different room. The unit was fairly quiet, with just seven babies being cared for in total and Lucy Letby had responsibility for a sicker baby in the intensive care room, Nursery One.
1: Baby G's designated nurse told the court that her observations, that's her heart rate, her breathing rate and temperature, were all fine in the hours leading up
4: to her collapse, and she'd been feeding well. So at two o'clock in the morning, she gave Baby G her usual 45 millilitres of expressed breast milk through her nose tube, which was the usual thing to do because she was asleep. And she took it without any problems. Soon afterwards, the nurse said she went on her hour-long break. And it was when she came back from that break
1: that she realised there'd been a problem.
4: Yes, the shift leader on duty that night, a nurse called Ailsa Simpson, told the jury that at about quarter past two, she was sitting at the nurse's station, directly opposite Nursery 2, when she heard Baby G vomit violently. She said the alarm monitoring Baby G sounded and she and Lucy Letby ran immediately to help her. She told the jury it was a significant projectile vomit which had gone out of Baby G's cot and onto the floor and a chair nearby. There was also sick on the bedsheets. Miss Simpson said she and Lucy Letby immediately sat Baby G up but her heart rate and oxygen levels dropped dramatically so they began giving her rescue breaths via a mask and called for help. Medical notes written by Lucy Letby later that morning also revealed that soon after she'd vomited, another 45 millilitres of milk, plus a quantity of air, was aspirated or drawn out of her stomach.
1: Dr Alison Ventress, the registrar on duty, came urgently to review Baby G and she noted the large, milky vomit and also that Baby G's stomach was purple and swollen and she was very distressed.
4: Dr Ventress gave evidence in court and took the jury through her notes, which revealed she had planned to insert a cannula into Baby G to start her on some antibiotics. But before this could be done, she was called away to the operating theatre, which was next door to help deliver another baby. An hour later, while Dr Ventress was still in theatre, Baby G deteriorated further. Dr Ventress told the court she was called out of theatre at around 3.20am when Baby G stopped breathing again and her heart rate crashed. The decision was made to move her to intensive care and Dr Stephen Breary, the on-call consultant, was asked to come in urgently. Dr Ventress decided to put Baby G onto a ventilator to help her
1: breathe. She told the court that when she tried to insert the tube down Baby G's throat, she saw a small amount of bloody fluid coming from behind Baby G's vocal cords, which struck her as unusual.
4: And this is significant because the prosecution say this is another example of Lucy Letby somehow assaulting Baby G as she did other alleged victims. The jury have heard that similar swelling was noted on Baby C's vocal cords before he was allegedly murdered and that Baby E also allegedly suffered a more brutal attack with a plastic tube or wire which caused the catastrophic bleeding before he too was killed.
1: So Baby G was moved to the intensive care nursery, Nursery 1, and because her designated nurse was not qualified to look after such poorly babies, Lucy Letby was assigned to take over her care.
4: That's right, Caroline. Lucy Letby took over the care of Baby G, while her designated nurse called her parents at home to tell them what had happened, and they came straight to the unit. When they arrived, they were very shocked at their daughter's deterioration. Her mother told the court...
5: I remember it was Lucy looking after her that day. We visited that day. The hospital then phoned to tell us she had vomited. We were told she was okay, but when we got there, she was in intensive care with all the machines. It was such a shock. She looked like she was going to die. And despite being on a ventilator
1: to help her breathe, Baby G failed to improve and doctors struggled to stabilise her. She suffered another collapse at 5.30am and again at 6.05. Doctors were desperately trying to work out what was going on and even changed the
4: ventilator in case it was faulty. Eventually they noticed thick mucus coming out of the breathing tube into her mouth and discovered a clot at the end of it, which they removed, and then tried to stabilise her once more. Doctors also thought her abdomen appeared very large and they drew out a significant amount of air from her tummy. They were still trying to stabilise Baby G when Lucy Letby clocked off for the night and went home, a little later than usual, at around 10am. Yes, and like we've seen in the other cases, later on that afternoon she began texting her friend and mentor, who we can't name for legal reasons, but who was on the day shift and had been designated to look after Baby G. The messages are read by actors and begin at 4.20pm, with Lucy
3: Letby asking her colleague,
4: who was on her break.
3: How are the parents? Devastated, but determined she'll get through, as always. Thought that if she got to 100, then they could feel confident she'd be fine. Awful, isn't it? We'd all been sat at desk at start of night, making banner. Mary brought her cake in. Right, best go back. See you shortly.
4: Kiss, kiss. Soon afterwards, the messages begin again, as they start discussing the Doctor's plan to transfer Baby G back to Arrow Park. They begin
3: with the nurse on duty
4: messaging Lucy Letby.
3: I come back and she's worse. Sad face emoji. Needs to go out. Too sick to move. Oh no. Yep, I know. Looks dreadful. Getting puffy. Any idea what's caused it? Nope. Just seems to be a circulatory collapse. Chest sounds clear. Hmm, what can cause that? Is it that she's an extreme prem who had long-term inotrope and vent dependency and now she's older and doing more for herself? It just takes a little bug or something to tip her over as no reserves and chronic lung etc. We're going with sepsis and yes to no reserves. She looks grim.
4: Later Lucy Leppy went into the hospital to fill in some paperwork from her previous night shift and she visited baby G. At 11pm she whatsapped her friend again who by now had also left work.
3: She looks awful, doesn't she? Hope you get some sleep. Yeah. Going to Arrow Park Hospital. On triple antibiotics now, and a bit more stable. Yes, just left work. Last gas, 7.0. Lactate, 9. So no better. Damn. I have a bad feeling. At least they know Arrow Park. Not looking good, but yes, at least going to where she is known. Just hope they get her there. Hmm, not sure they will. On today of all days. Yup, poor parents. Yeah, she's declining bit by bit. Yup, need to try and switch off. I'll update you tomorrow. Kiss, 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 kiss. And later that night,
4: in the early hours of September the 8th, Baby G was moved back to Arrow Park Hospital.
1: So, as we said earlier, there have been a couple of significant delays in the case this week, so the jury have yet to hear in detail from the
4: prosecution experts. But it's probably worth pointing out that in his opening statement at the beginning of the trial, prosecution barrister Nick Johnson Casey said both experts, so that's retired paediatrician Dr Dowie Evans and neonatologist Dr Sandy Bowen, were in agreement that someone gave Baby G an excessive volume of milk and injected her with air, probably via her nose tube, around 2 o'clock in the morning. They both said that the
1: fact that baby G had been fed 45 millilitres by her designated nurse around that time, vomited, then another 45 millilitres was aspirated from her stomach, proved there was a clear inconsistency between the amount of milk
4: that had gone into baby G and the amount of milk that had come out. And both experts say this didn't happen by accident and that someone must have put extra milk and air into her stomach. But Lucy Letby denies harming baby G, and
1: her defence barrister, Ben Myers Casey, insisted she was an extremely premature, high-risk baby.
4: He suggested markers in her blood, which was tested periodically the day after her collapse, suggested she had an infection, and that this, not Lucy Letby, was the cause of her collapse. Under his cross-examination, Dr Ventris admitted, As Lucy Letby and her colleague had discussed in their text messages, that they initially believed baby G's sudden deterioration was due to sepsis and that they had treated her with antibiotics accordingly. And it's not disputed that once at Arrow Park, baby G was treated
1: for an infection. She stabilised and quickly made good progress. In fact, just over a week later, on September the 16th, she was well enough to return again to the Countess.
4: And at that point, she weighed four pounds, ten ounces. She was on very little medication, and her parents were hopeful that it wouldn't be too long before she'd be allowed home. Their hopes, though, were short-lived because
1: five days later, on September the 21st, which was the date she was originally due to be born, she fell ill again. The prosecution say Lucy Letby had tried to kill her for a second time.
4: She's accused of attempting to murder baby G on two more occasions on that date. Those two allegations will be the focus of next week's episode, and we should stress again that Lucy Letby denies all the charges. So this
1: week, Liz, we've got a fantastic guest who knows the inside of a courtroom better than most. He's prosecuted some of the most serious criminals and gangs in some of the most high-profile cases in the country and put some of Britain's worst offenders behind bars for a
4: very long time. We're joined by Nazir Afzal, the former Chief Crown Prosecutor for the North West. Thanks so much for doing this, Nazir. I suppose what we were hoping you might be able to shed some light on and give us a bit of an insight into is how much pressure is there for prosecutors when they end up with a big serious case like this to compile the evidence, to get everything right,
2: You've got to always, at the back of your mind, remember, there's a jury there listening to this for the first time. And so you've got to present your case that will be relatively easily understandable at the same time as addressing all the issues that you have to address. So we start off on the basis, you know, the defendant is always in proven guilty. That means the prosecution needs to prove guilt. That means that they have to reach a high standard, the threshold being... People know it as beyond reasonable doubt, but actually mm-hmm. it means that the jury have to be sure of the guilt of the individual on each count on the indictment. So you can't like, generalize it and, and try and throw mud at somebody. You've got to be able to prove each count, each charge, in effect, to the high standard, and do so in such a way that the jury understand the evidence. At the same time, you've got to be able to rebut any defense arguments. So, if the defence is saying A, B, and C, you've got to have a response to A, B, and C. And all of that has to be done up front. I prosecuted the Stepping Hill Hospital allegations 11 years ago. That was an allegation against an individual who was a nurse. It took us, I think, something like two years to get to trial because we had to get all the expert evidence lined up. You've got to be able to prove that the deaths were unlawful and then prove that the person that we are charged and ultimately was convicted, was responsible for that.
4: Interesting you bring that up, Nazir, because I was chatting to another reporter that covered that trial. In this current Lucy Letby trial, in order to try and simplify which is a hell of a lot of complicated medical evidence, they've got iPads with lots and lots of documents online. They've each got their individual iPad. The police have done videos to show how you put a drip up, fly-throughs of the neonatal unit. Technology's moved on quite a bit.
2: In the old days, you probably remember that sometimes a jury was taken to the alleged scene of the crime. Mm. So now you don't need to do that. You can show them. You can video it. You can use all sorts of technology to be able to show how something may have been done or may not be done.
4: Yeah, you know, they are taking easy. on a lot of complicated yeah. information.
2: In a case like this, it's expert evidence that will be the most important evidence, I imagine. And experts. Are very good at speaking their academic-y type language. <laughs> yes, but yeah, you and I don't understand a word of it, and so we've got to try and turn it into something that's readily accessible, and that proves very challenging. But the prosecution have to do it; it's the responsibility of the prosecution.
1: To, to go back to the technology, Nazir, for someone who's sort of seen this over the passage of time, is it is it a positive development?
2: Absolutely. I mean, we can't push back and say, "Well, let's go back to paper and pen." People now receive everything in digital ways, so they expect to see that in the courtroom too.
1: So that's it for part one of episode nine. Next week, in part two, we'll hear that Lucy Letby is accused of attempting to murder baby G on two further occasions.
4: I'll be in court to listen to the evidence, and you can read my daily reports in the mail and on Mail Plus. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or send us an email at thetrialoflucyletby at com, And we'll both be back next week. See you then.
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. I'm coming to But here's one anyway.
1: Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me.
0: If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again, because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And
1: I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby! I don't have camel toe.
0: Unbelievable.
1: And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah,
0: I remember that being really stressful. Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.